the opportunity to stand before you again today. We started a, a series, a lesson series, I guess. Um, we started with a study of a hard saying, and one of the verses that I drew, I guess, inspiration from was John in chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you today, I would encourage you to keep it and turn it to John because we're going we're gonna to move through the book of John. Um, to stir up our minds to remembrance of that which we wanted to study and this hard saying that, um, that the crowd, the disciples that were with Jesus, said was hard to, uh, to, to listen to. I want to go back and read verses 53 through 60. John chapter 6. Sorry if I said 1 John a moment ago. I don't know if I did. John chapter 6, verses 53 through 60. Then Jesus said, said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by, my, by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. <clears throat> These things said he in the synagogue, and he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And so, in the light of um, 2 Timothy and uh, chapter 2, 15, Romans 15, things that we presented last week, I want to, I want to dive into what may feel like a hard saying, or at least the disciples there on that day said, this is a, is a hard saying, and who can hear it? And maybe it's difficult for us. I want to present this in a way of taking us through the book of John. So admittedly, I, if I gave three minutes to every slide on here, we wouldn't make it through today. So I'm going to have to cut it at some point, and we'll probably break this into two lessons unless I just skip forward. But as I was preparing this and practicing and meditating on what I wanted to bring forth from God's word, I thought about a study, study's not the right word, a conversation I had with a coworker years ago. And I don't remember, I think I remember what scripture he had asked me a question about, but he wanted some thoughts. He wanted my opinion on something he, he and his son had started reading and had came across and it was bothering him. And as we went through it, I walked him back several chapters and started there. And, and so we moved through and progressed. And as I'm going to do today, I delivered too much content. And I said, I'm sorry, that's more than you wanted to know. And he said, well, I've asked four other people. And you're the first one who has gone into that much depth of what you thought. And I said, well, here's my reasoning. If I deliver to you my opinion, it's only as valuable as what you think of me. And that's it. But if I walk you back into the scriptures and I try to put you in context of what was being discussed and covered, it's 
going to come more to life. If I put you in context of who was there during that time, it's going to help understand the, the full context of what's being taught. If I can help you and I and him assimilate with those who heard and would read this in the first century or 2,000 years later, it will help make sense in the full context of what um, should bear out of that scripture. And so that's my intent this morning and why I have way too much content for us to cover. But I want to build from the first chapter of John up to John 6. And I want to show you why this should not have been a hard lesson for those disciples. And why it shouldn't be a hard saying for us. Because John built his way there. And then John, quoting or, or repeating what he, uh, he witnessed and saw of our Lord, is building upon and showing that there should have been no doubt. It should have been, I, I think I put in, in my wording here, that it should have been solid. It should have been built. And when Jesus came to this saying and this conclusion, I am the bread. I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. And only those who will consume this will have eternal life. It should have been clear to them what he was speaking and what he was saying. And it's my conclusion, I will go ahead and give you as we build the evidence to get there, that it wasn't a hard saying because they just didn't understand. It was a hard saying because they couldn't accept it. And so we'll, we'll see if that bears out, Lord willing, in probably the next couple of, of studies together. But I'm going to start in John chapter 1, as I warned you I would, and I'm going to read... I'm not going to be able to do this in every chapter, but John chapter 1 lays the foundation of John's book. Jesus is. So John chapter 1 through verse probably 16 or 17 is where I'll stop. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, lost my place, he came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 
We're going to maneuver through these now to the conclusion that, that Jesus is. And what is Jesus? This is presented by John. First of all, we know John said the word is eternal. Right? In the beginning was the word. There's no disputing that. The same was in the beginning with God. We see that also in, um, well, we see it in 1 John. And then I reference 1 John twice. We see it later on in John's conclusion. It will be in our notes. The word was unified or aligned with God or equal to God. John proclaimed that in the first two verses. We also see it in Philippians 2 in verse 6. The word was with God, the same in the beginning, with God, aligned, equal, unified. The word was God. Again, first two verses, but also in Philippians 2 and verse 6. The word was the creator of all things. Comes out in John third chapter that we read. We also see it in John uh, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 3 and verse 10, and it comes out in Colossians 1 and 17. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. In the word is life, according to John verses 3 and 4. We see it again in, in chapter 5, chapter 6, and we see it in Philippians 2.16. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. John's building. Who is this Jesus? Who is the Word, rather? The Word was the light of men. So if you want to know who the Word was, John says, first of all, the Word's eternal. The Word is equal with God. The Word was with God. The Word is God. The Word was the creator of all things. The Word was the light of men. And unless anyone was confused, goodness gracious, that small typing, I'm sorry. Um, unless anyone was confused, John made clear the conclusion. The word was Jesus. The word was Christ. John wanted to make sure there was no confusion in verse 8 because he was being pressed by the Pharisees. Who are you? Tell us who you are. I'm, I am not the word. I am not the Christ. I came to bear witness of the light. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness of the same thing that Isaiah told you. He is coming. And he is greater than I. The word was flesh. John wanted to make sure that they understood that. The, the oh, By the way, I skipped the first one. And it, it, it's important, or it is in my mind anyway. The word was recognizable to men. I recognize that can be a hard saying because... Men had to, in many cases, see the signs in the miracles they had to have experienced. They had to have had um, witness and, and other things to help them understand this is the Christ. But Christ was recognizable. The word was recognizable. We know it because John said, I'm, I'm going to bear witness of who he is. We also know that in Matthew, um, the, uh, the soldier, Roman soldier, knew who Christ was after he was crucified. Um, so the word was recognizable to men, but it, it took evidence and it took reasoning, but it was recognizable. Fourth point on here, the word was full of grace and full of truth. And Jesus was the word, according to John, in verse 17. Verse 14, um, he starts to build, but if we stopped at verse 14, we still might be confused that the word was something else. But John had laid out, the Word's eternal, the Word is with God, the Word was God, the Word is the creator of all things, 
The word's the light of men. It's recognizable to those who truly seek it with an open heart and mind. The word was made flesh, so it, it is here. We can touch it and feel it and see it. The word was full of grace and truth. How am I going to know whether or not it's the word? Well, I'll be able to test it against that which is true. But I'm not the word. Jesus is. Verse 17 is very clear. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, and tie that truth back to what he had said earlier, all grace and truth is in the word. Grace and truth cameth by Jesus Christ. Very clear in the first 17 verses of the opening of, of the book of John. Jesus is the word. He's eternal. He's the son of God. He is aligned with God in everything he does and everything he says and everything he delivers and the will that he came to serve. He's the creator of all things. In him is life. John is going to build on this now for the next five chapters. But I want to continue on and finish out the rest of John's proclamation. By the way, you're going to see in bold as we move through the next slides and however many we make. That bold is just that individual who made a proclamation about Jesus, all right? And so we're going to build the evidence of, of who Jesus was and what he was offering so we understand John 6, 60. John proclaimed who Jesus was. And John, in the 29th chapter of the first verse, the next day John, Jesus, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he, that should have been capitalized, of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. If you didn't understand it in the first 17 verses, John said, This is him. This is the Lamb of God. John bear record saying, and uh, this is verses 32 through 36, John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he's, he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and bear record, I saw this, this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. How could John be any more clear or specific or firm in these events? He openly proclaimed Jesus and all that he was and all that he is. How could John be any more clear or specific to the readers of this in the first century or the centuries to come. He built a specific, solid, and firm proclamation. Jesus is. What is Jesus? We just listed all those things. The Word is, and Jesus is the Word. These are my thoughts here from uh, the first six chapters, but by the witness of one man, one prophet, John, is presented that Jesus is the Word, He is eternal, He's with God, He's in the flesh, He's the creator of all things, He's the life of all things, He is eternal life, since He is life and eternal. The Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, the Son of God that baptizes with the Holy Ghost. John's proclamation. But John wasn't the only one. Before we finish out the first chapter of John, Andrew 
gives proclamation of who Jesus was. This is in verses 37 through 40. And the two disciples, these were disciples that were with John when John had said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples which heard him speak, and, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and said unto him, Listen to his proclamation after spending time with Jesus. We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. We have found the Christ was Andrew's proclamation. John has, has uh, proclaimed who Jesus was, and now Andrew has proclaimed, this is the Christ. This is the one that was prophesied to come. Philip then proclaims um, who Jesus is, and Philip says he's, he's, the he's the one of which the prophets spake of old. John, verses, John 1, verses 43 through 46. I don't know why I'm getting tongue-tied this morning. Practiced this too many times and changed it up too much, I guess. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, Here's Philip's proclamation. We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Who did he find? We found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We have found that prophet of which they spake. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. There's, a, there's maybe another sermon and lesson in, in how these individuals, when they recognized Christ, what they did, they went to tell others. We're going to see that over and over as well. We saw it in Andrew, we saw it in Philip, we saw it, we'll see it with the Samaritan woman. Nathaniel then proclaims Jesus. Again, verses 47 through 50. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And Nathaniel said, Whence knowest thou me? When did we ever meet? How do you know me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto you that I saw you under the fig tree. In other words, you knew that there's no way I could have seen you there from where I was at. But because I've told you that, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. But Nathaniel made the proclamation. He was the son of God, the king of Israel. In just the first chapter of the book of John, we see many, many proclamations of who the word was, what the word was, and that Jesus was the word, Jesus is the Christ and the one to come. Those present, and when we move through the first six chapters here, John, I want you to, to try to imagine or put yourself in the presence of those that would have been there, and how would these experiences and these witnesses and these teachings 
have affected them. And then think about those who would read this in the first century when John delivered it. And then think about all those who would read it for the next 2,000 years, including us. What, um, what is there? What evidence is there for us? And what do we take away from it? Well, those present at the time in Jesus' ministry heard firsthand those proclamations. All right? I mean, that's, they would have been there and heard what John said. Some would have been there and heard Andrew. Some would have heard Philip. Some would have heard Nathaniel. Those reading in the first century and beyond, we have this recorded for us. All that Jesus is, Jesus is the word. And, and what does that mean? It's clear, it's solid, it's firm. John is saying without doubt or certainty, Jesus is the word. He's more than just a man. He was from God and he was God. Moving into the second chapter, Mary knew who Jesus was. Of course Mary knew who Jesus was, right? But she knew what he was capable of. I find this an interesting read and study. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciple to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Put yourself in the shoes of those who were there, the disciples that were with Jesus and witnessed this. Now, from an earthly perspective, we can, we can assimilate with what's happening here. This is a mother to her son, but this is a mother speaking to her son who knows what he is capable of. Notice the implication here is not, Jesus, they're out of wine. You guys need to go do something. Because that's not how she concludes her message here. She says to those disciples that are with him, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. In other words, I know what he is capable of doing. It wasn't, Jesus, go, go fetch some more wine. Go buy some more wine. Go barter a trade for some more wine. But she's saying, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says, it's not my time to reveal to them who I am. That's what he's saying. But the earthly side of me can see the mother... And maybe I'm wrong, but I can see her leaning in. And she just looks at him and then looks at the disciples. Whatever he tells you, you do. Mary knew who he was. Mary knew what he was capable of. She didn't know the full, I guess, the full revelation of the mystery, but she knew he was of God. We know the, the continuation of that account. Jesus turned the water into wine. His disciples, his mother... The servants that were present with him, they would proclaim who he was because of the miracle that they witnessed. This is uh, verses 1 through 11 of the second chapter. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto his servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, 
tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. In other words, he didn't know where it came from. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. His mother believed on him. His disciples believed on him. There is no reason to suspect. As a matter of fact, we'll see in chapter 5 um, what I think is, is evidence that those that saw this miracle did not keep it a secret. There's no reason to suspect that the servants kept this miracle a secret. It's logical that those present that day knew from then on what he was capable of and that he was capable of performing miracles, and they would have told, told others. It's logical you and I would have done the same thing as we went back to our homes and had interaction with our friends. Let me tell you about what I saw the other day. This man who is no man turned water into wine right in front of my face. In verses 14 through 22, the disciples have an opportunity to reflect back on the teachings they have already learned and know and they will have opportunity in the future. So this is a foreshadow of looking back and seeing the fulfillment of the restoration of the temple. They didn't know it maybe at the time that it was spoken, but we are assured here that looking back, then they came to understand. And found in the temple those, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made, this is Jesus, when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take this, these things, take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest this? What? Who are you that has the authority to tell us what to do in the temple? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They didn't understand. Those then would not have understood this. Reflecting back later on, and it's logical to, to assume that some of those who would have been there this day would have been present at his death, burial, and resurrection. His disciples, at the least, would have been there. But it's logical that even some of those that were in the marketplace that were in the temple would have been there as well. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Again, putting yourself in the context of those there might not have understood yet. Putting ourselves in the context of those reading when John delivered this in the first century and those reading it years later we now understand what it was he spoke of and we have the evidence and the proof and can see where that was fulfilled when therefore he was risen from the dead his disciples remembered what he had said unto them so this is that foreshadowing and then looking back and they believed the scripture and the word which jesus had said already delivered my last two points there it was logical to suppose that some of them present 
um, knew of these prophecies, just as the um, just as the disciples already knew. It was logical that those there would have heard these same things and should have had the ability to remember. Huh, it was prophesied of old about the zeal of thine house and how it has become corrupt. It's logical to suppose that some of them present could have witnessed his death, burial, and resurrection. So in chapter 2, we see many, many individuals, Mary, the disciples, those present at the marriage feast, and then even verse 23 tells us, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast, did many believe in his name, or many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So we have, I don't know how many, dozens or hundreds of additional individuals that saw and witnessed what Christ was capable of to prove who he was and what he offered. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus proclaimed, Nicodemus is an interesting study. I would put forth to you that every one of these chapters we could have made a pretty um, lengthy sermon and in-depth. But Nicodemus proclaimed Jesus as rabbi, master, as from God, and aligned with God. This comes from the first two verses in chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees. We would learn that Nicodemus, by the way, is a member of the Sanhedrin Council. So he's a Pharisee. He's learned in the law. Um, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, there likely was not, we don't know who else may have been with Nicodemus. Just keeping in context what we read, then maybe there was no one else other than Jesus and Nicodemus present. But for those reading this, as John wrote it years later, we would, would understand, and this was further evidence, this is further proclamation. Jesus is from God. Jesus is God. Now Nicodemus proclaimed, to, to, proclaimed he knew Jesus. He proclaimed he was from God. What we don't know and understand is Nicodemus's motives. And so to dive in there, in my opinion, would, would just be conjecture on our part. Um, the question is there, why did he come by night? Was he ashamed? Was he trying to do it in cloak of darkness so nobody else would see him? He was a ruler of the Pharisees. It was logical that if somebody were coming in and preaching and teaching, as a ruler and a member of the Sanhedrin Council, he should know what they were preaching and teaching. So it would have been logical for him to go to Jesus. So why did he do it at night? Why did Jesus go directly into the necessity of the new birth? Because what Nicodemus needed to know, we recognize that now as readers. Um, Jesus taught directly because Nicodemus needed to know. Was Nicodemus sincerely seeking? We don't know. We don't know if Nicodemus shared his thoughts of Jesus with anyone else of his time, but we do know that he tried to get the others to listen to Jesus. He did advocate for Jesus to have a fair trial. In John 7 and 51, in the midst of the council that was preparing to unjustly and 
outside of the law in any other way we want to describe it, unfairly condemn our Lord and Savior. Nicodemus did say this this isn't this isn't our law. Let's go to John 7 51, so I'm not just paraphrasing it. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Let's have a chance to hear and see what he does. Now they ridiculed Nicodemus. They shut him down quickly. But we do know at least that he um, he advocated for Jesus to be heard and to give a fair trial. So maybe we can ascertain a little bit about his motive. We don't know if he shared his thoughts with anyone else at the time or if he eventually followed Jesus. But he did show compassion for Christ's body. In John 19, 39, we see that he brought he brought spices. I'm losing my train of thought. I don't know if it's 75 ounces, 75 pounds, what the wording was. He brought spices to prepare Jesus' body. Why? Because he recognized this is more than a man. No man can do these miracles. I don't know the thoughts and intents of Nicodemus. What I do know is Nicodemus had everything he needed to know who Jesus was, what Jesus offered, and what he needed to do. Whether that was when Jesus was in his presence, or when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. Whether or not Nicodemus ever accepted and followed that which Jesus taught, I don't know. But he did proclaim, and we have it reported for us, his proclamation of who Jesus was. For the sake of time, I'm going to move quickly through this, and then I'll, I'll close this out. We're back about halfway through these slides, so it'll work out well. In John 3, John reaffirms his proclamation. Lest it wasn't clear in the first chapter what I'm building up to, John interjects his, um, his proclamation again in verses 25 to 35. And concludes it with the necessity of obedience. So listen to these verses. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. They're having a dispute. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, Christ, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. That's my joy, John said. I'm the one who proclaims the bride, uh, the bridegroom. I'm the one standing there with him and witnessing him. This is my joy, therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his te testimony hath sent to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Jesus speaks the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, 
and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son have everlasting life. That's what's necessary. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Jesus is life. Only by believing him can we hope to have eternal life. But the wrath of God abideth on him, the one who doesn't believe. For the Jews and those who were with John during this time, it should be abundantly clear already, should have been in chapter 1 or at the beginning of, of John's um, writing. By chapter 3, it ought to be clear, this is the Son of God. This is the Word. This is the truth. In Him is life. So I'm going to give you the cliff notes and run you up to my conclusion, but we're going to circle back and close it out next week. It should have been abundantly clear to those there in Jesus' presence in John chapter 6 when he delivered that I am the bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. The things that I'm bringing unto you are the necessity of life. You've got to believe in me. The, the partaking of the bread, the partaking of the blood, the meat that endureth to, um, to eternal life, the water which um, leads to eternal life, all those things were me, Jesus said. To partake of those things was to believe and go on believing. I'm trying to find where I want to wrap up here. but um, It should have been abundantly clear by the time we get to John 6. And those who had been with Jesus saw him feed the 5,000. They had heard these witnesses, more than 5,000 witnesses to the things he had done, the miracles he had performed. They had heard his words spoken. They had heard his proclamation. And they get all the way down to verse 53 and hear him again. And they're wondering, how can this be the bread of life? How can this be the bread from heaven? They give an indication of why this was so difficult several verses earlier. Because they said, how can this be? This is the Jesus of Nazareth. This man comes from Nazareth. It wasn't that they didn't understand. It's that they couldn't accept that he was the Messiah. He's not the one we want. We also see previously in chapter 5 a little bit about where their mindset was. Because Jesus crossed over onto the other side of the shore because they wanted to set him up as a king on earth. It wasn't his purpose. That wasn't the will he came to, to, to fit. But that's what they wanted. This man is capable of things nobody else can do. Let's make him our king. We'll rule the earth. But then they didn't want to accept what he had to say unto them. I don't want to be in subjection to Jesus. That's in essence what they said when they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? You want us to accept that you are the son of God. And when you're saying you are the bread, what you're saying is, I have the words of the Father. I'm aligned with him. When you're saying you're the bread of life, then you're saying everything you deliver unto us, we have to believe and accept. That's what was hard for them. It wasn't that they didn't understand. They had plenty of, of evidence. They had plenty of witness. They had seen his miracles. They had all that they needed to know what he was talking about. The word um, hard there, according to Vines, the original Hebrews, I, I think the pronunciation is skleos. 
means difficult or offensive, the word offensive probably fits that statement best. When they said this lesson was hard, it was offensive. Because of who they perceived, how they perceived him, not because it was hard to understand. Well, let me close with this for each and every one of us. We'll, we'll pick up in uh, the conclusion of chapter 3 and we'll move through 4 and 5 and, and continue to build the evidence and the case here for John 6. Jesus is. We know that. We have already accepted it. But know and understand what it is that, that we have put on. When we put on Christ... We put in all that he put on all that he delivered unto us. And when he says believeth, ETH ongoing, he who believeth in me means we continue to believe. We continue to exercise that which he has delivered. We abide in him. How are we going to abide in him? We abide in his words. Greg delivered it for us this morning in our study. Um, using the words of Christ himself. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You want to abide in me? keep my commandments. You want to abide in me? Keep my word. My word is the word of God. My word is the word is the bread of life. My word is eternal life. Embrace it. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? I'm hoping, as Jimmy began his lesson or his study this morning, I'm hoping that's what we get out of this when we finish next week. Those students who said, this wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. I'm hoping for us, John chapter 6 isn't as hard as we thought. Maybe when we first start, started, especially if we only started at verse 53 through 60, this does feel a little difficult to understand. I've got to eat of the flesh, and I've got to partake of the blood. If you haven't had an opportunity, you will have somebody who wants to study and reason that out with you in the future. I had an Episcopalian friend who wanted to move through that and said, yeah, when we partake, it becomes the actual physical flesh of Christ. No. The institution of the Lord's Supper was very clear. When you partake of these things, remember what I've given for you. But here, this is not the institution of the Lord's Supper. These weren't believers yet. Matter of fact, we are going to see the conclusion most of them would not come to accept it. They would leave Christ and follow him no more. This wasn't delivered to those who were believed. This isn't Christ saying, hey, partake of these things. I mean, partake, I won't think back on what I gave for you. This is him saying, you have got to believe who I am and what I deliver unto you. To partake of the flesh, to partake of the blood, to partake of the meat, to partake of the water, is to accept what I deliver unto you. Accept me and what that means and abide in me. If you love me, keep my commandments. I'm going to wrap up there. Uh, to my knowledge, each and every one in attendance here today um, is a part of the family. You're, you're a member of that church which Christ established by his blood, um, that he died on the cross to purchase. You have, um, have heard and accepted that which was required of you. I'm sorry, I'm flipping back. I don't want to shortchange the, uh, the Lord's invitation. And I gave you plenty of references and I'm not going to reference all of them so that's why I'll put it on the screen um, you've accepted Christ's plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation that man has to hear the word of God, in other words he has had to have heard it proclaimed or studied it 
we will we will read and pick up and see in chapter six as well that Christ Himself declared that those who will have eternal life, those who will believe on Me, will be taught. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And having heard the word of God, we have to believe it. And to believe it means we have to accept it. We have to embrace it. We have to abide in it. We have to keep it. You love me, keep my commandments. We have to believe that he is. He makes that abundantly clear, as does John in the first six chapters of John. We have to believe he is the Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected. He overcame death. That's important to us because without the resurrection, there's no hope. And everything that we proclaim and everything that we live and believe crumbles. We have to repent. That is, we have to, to turn from those things that we see that are contrary to God's word and to Christ. And we have to embrace that which is right. So we have to do a 180 degree turn from those things that keep us from him. We have to be willing to confess Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. I believe in him. I believe he died on the cross. And all those things that entail, I believe Jesus Christ, as the Ethiopian eunuch did. We have to be willing to be baptized for the remission of sins. I think this audience knows it. We've studied it pretty conclusively. We're very fond of quoting Acts 2 and verse 38, but we see it in many, many other Instances, baptism is necessary. Baptism does now save us. It's a part of God's plan. It's a necessity. Just like those in chapter 6 could not alter or change or deny or just partake in part of that which Jesus offers, we can't either. So baptism is necessary. And then we have to remain faithful, Revelation 2.10. We have to strive to do those things that he has asked us to do, just as those in John 6 asked, what do we do to do the works of God? There's things we have to do. We have to accept that which he's already given us. We have to accept his grace. We have to apply it. But then we have to strive to live and to fulfill the works that he set out for us, including going and preaching and teaching and including studying as we are doing this morning. So to the best of my knowledge, each and every one here has um, accepted and followed God's plan of salvation. But if you are in question, we want to study that out and reason it out and make sure you did so for the right reasons. And if you have not, you have opportunity to do so. But as a child of God, you have an advocate, an intercessor, and one who waits to plead on your behalf. And you have a special blessing to repent and turn from those things that separate you from God and to pray unto God that he will forgive you of those things. And we know that he is just to do so, and he has promised us he will, if we'll repent from those things. If you have any need to respond to the Lord's invitation, and we could be of any help to you in any way, we extend that opportunity to do so. Please come forward as we stand and sing.